Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined, as always, by Dimitri Kalyagin. And we're here on one of those episodes where we're giving you everything we know because there's so much going on. But at any moment, things could change. You know, maybe while I'm editing this before it gets out, Israel has made a move on Rafa or any number of other things could have happened. But we're coming at you here with our 61st episode as Israel is dropping flyers over southern Gaza as they prepare for a potential massive incursion there, while at the same time, their Air Force leader and other military officials are threatening a massive escalation with Hezbollah as Hezbollah launches 60-plus missiles into Israel and their largest escalation ever. Of course, we're also going to be talking about Tucker Carlson's interview with Putin. Of course, I reacted to it live. You can check that out on our X account, World War Now underscore. Uh, we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about Zaluzhny getting fired and it's his replacement by Sierski. We're going to be talking about some crazy videos coming out of Ukraine and persecution of the UOC and a whole bunch of other things. So it's going to be a packed show. Dimitri, how are you doing? Doing great, Conrad. And yes, uh, as we predicted last week, things continuing to escalate in the Middle East. And there are you know official deadlines given of you know Netanyahu and other Israeli officials saying there'll be about a two-week period prior to Israel, the Israeli army actually entering into that last and final bastion of Palestinian, I would say, sovereignty in Gaza, which would be Rafah, the city right on the border of Egypt and uh, Israel. So essentially, we're looking at the most southern sort of stronghold at this point. From what I can see, Conrad, on the map, it just looks like a massive refugee camp, essentially. And yes, perhaps it does have several Hamas battalions and brigades actually stationed there in order to defend the people from the IDF. But from what we've seen, Israel is looking to actually go in there, just like just as they've done in Gaza City and in Khan Yunus, and just basically begin liquidating the Hamas fighters, which is how they've spoken about it. Notice they use these dehumanizing terms such as liquidating as if it's like, you know, speaking about animals or some sort of like video game characters or, uh, you know, it's it's like very technical, very dehumanizing, scientific, almost very Pfizerian. But this is like, this is the Israeli method. And naturally, let's mention Khan Yunus. We spoke about it quite a bit last week, what's been happening there. Crazy footage. You know, we've seen entire apartment blocks being demolished so they just, as we've said, an element of genocide is actually destroying the culture of the local people living there. It's not just and not killing a bunch of people, sending them to concentration camps, POW camps, displacing them. It's actually destroying their culture, their landscape, where they live, their countryside, in order for them to actually not be able to sustainably live in that place again, right? Move them away, have just destroy the incentive for them to actually return. And so these apartment buildings, they plant bombs below them. And just like 9-11, these people destroy these really tall buildings uh, standing in Khan Yunus. It's really, you know, the IDF is essentially complicit in domestic terrorism of a very technical level here. And again, we've seen mosques get destroyed as well. So no churches thus far, thus far being affected. And that's only probably because, well, look, they, they could make the same excuse that the, the church or the certain mosque has a Hamas tunnel under it, or it's been used for storage of Hamas weaponry and things like that. There is no accountability, no auditing of these things. So we just have to trust the IDF officials and the ministry, the ministry of internal affairs of Israel, the minister of defense in their press conferences who state that, look, Hamas are hiding behind below the mosque, the mosque gets blown up. So Khan Yunus is almost completely Israeli captured at this point. Yes, that's why they're moving south towards Rafah and Everyone's preparing for it, right? We see Hezbollah actually increasing their bombing capacity, as you've said. The Islamic world is preparing for Israel to unleash a new wave of hostilities. And how many people are actually in Rafah at the moment, right? So we spoke about like over two and a half million people, from two to two and a half million people in Gaza overall. But there is over one one point four million people in Rafah at the moment. It's very overcrowded, naturally being like a essentially a semi 
a sort of the DIY do-it-yourself like type of refugee camp at this point receiving somewhat you know small inputs of Egyptian aid for humanitarian purposes but very much at risk of if Israel actually goes in with their tanks as they've done in Khan Yunus and Gaza City there'll be atrocities of very severe levels against straight to straight fighting uh, civilians being abused probably all kinds of assaults happening including sexual type assaults you know kids being killed again horrible footage will probably come out of that and the Islamic world is preparing for it hence we're seeing Egypt actually bring tanks to the border of you know Egypt and Israel and actually you know you mentioned building sand barricades, things like that. There's a lot of elements we're seeing come together. And maybe perhaps this is the the moment, finally, that the Islamic world will have to wake up and actually protect their own people. These Palestinian Arabs who, you know, a lot of them are, they consider themselves complete members of the Muslim world, not a, some random minority who lives in this Levantine state of, you know, Israel-Palestine. They're actually, you know, members of this larger mosaic of Islamic, Sunni, Shia culture. And now it's probably time to actually stand up for them. And I'm just not just talking about the Houthis and the Iranians and Persians who have actually done their part, but with Saudi Arabians, Jordanians, Egyptians, and maybe you know maybe even the official Lebanese government here, not just Hezbollah. Yeah, all the Sunnis that are actually the most similar in religion to the actual people in Gaza Strip being persecuted. But in the midst of all of this, of course, we are seeing reports and plans about for the deportation of well over a million, 1.5 million Palestinians from all of Gaza into the northern Sinai Peninsula. Apparently, this has been approved and endorsed by the Israeli Ministry of Intelligence. It itself was written by Mayor Ben Shabbat, who was a close confidant of Netanyahu and a former Israeli national security advisor. And so they plan a full deportation, and I guess they're going full annexation of the Gaza Strip at this point. And this is, of course, issued a strong reaction from basically every Arab country, even all these Sunni ones, even the UAE, which has in the past been very pro-Israel, frankly, in the past few months since October 7th happened. And of course, Jordan and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia have warned against an Israeli offensive on Rafah and have called for a meeting of the UN Security Council. And at this point... It seems that Egypt is even prepared to, I mean, they've said that they're willing to renege on the Camp David Accords and the 1978 peace agreements. And they have been, like Dimitri said, putting up sand barriers, you know, mobilizing armored vehicles and tanks to the border of the Gaza Strip. And remember, Egypt is one of the largest militaries in the Muslim world. I would say they probably have the second most powerful military after Iran. And maybe Turkey, depends on, you know, Turkey, Egypt, Iran, those are the largest military power, Saudi Arabia, you know, depending on what weapons deal they have going that year, they don't have as many people as these other countries, so it's tough to compete. But if Egypt really actually does something to help God, of course, the aid has been flowing in. There's videos of, you know, settlers and Israeli nationalists and whatnot trying to block aid going into Gaza and the trucks and whatnot, you know, very interesting behavior. But of course, these flyers that are being dropped are warning all of them to move south to go into northern Sinai, and the Egyptian government has said they have no interest in taking mass amounts of Palestinian refugees. That's a red line for them. And going into Rafah, I assume, yes, that will involve going into you know, the Philadelphia Corridor, which is 14 kilometers of land into Gaza that is effectively part of Egypt, and there's zero Israeli control or observation or anything over there. And if Israel goes in there, Egypt has said that that is going to trigger unprecedented responses. So we're watching all of that very closely, of course, all while 
The head of the Israeli Air Force says that while they already have dozens of planes flying over southern Lebanon, at any moment those dozens of planes can become hundreds of planes. And they've gone on to from just threatening Hezbollah to they're threatening the Lebanese government, they're threatening Hezbollah all as almost one entity. So it seems that they are very determined to move on this. And it's a confusing political situation because while we know that Netanyahu is in hot water the moment normality returns, it seems that he is facing pressure from the hardline nationalist, Kahanist, you know, build the third temple nowists like Itamar Ben Gavir and I mean Yov Galant even right now, you know, the head of the military and defense, he seems hell bent on going to war with Lebanon and making way for greater Israel and taking all of the territory that is currently controlled by Hezbollah, of course. What a coincidence that the most volatile group to Israel controls the most immediate territory that Israel would like to expand into. You know, I mean, Israel is north of Hezbollah in many ways if you take the Golan Heights and are able to operate in those regards. And of course, those are paths where Syria has been able to deliver weapons from Iran to Hezbollah and whatnot. And it's one of the main ports of trade and of collaboration with the axis of resistance around Israel in general. And it seems that the U.S., I mean, we're going to get into this as well at some point with the Biden stuff, that the U.S. is not quite doing as much as the war hawks in Israel and those that are trying to expand their state need to right now, because we see Biden going after these settlers. We see Biden calling for a ceasefire, saying that the response in Gaza is too strong and all these sorts of things. And is it any coincidence that maybe now suddenly we're seeing probably the worst media situation for Biden we've seen since the beginning of his presidency? Right, and like speaking speaking about Biden, right? I, I need to mention his overlord, or so the guy who brought him into the spotlight, the dark spirit, you know, Obama himself, right? The dark spirit of Obama actually looms over this conflict because we, you know, you we we began our expose of the Middle East conflict today on this episode with discussing Hezbollah bombings, and it's like, well, are Lebanese are these Lebanese bombings of Israel at the moment, or you know, long range missile strikes are they justified? And it's like completely yes, because Israel is at the moment, even breaching Lebanese sovereignty. So just, and, and this took place on the 10th of February, so literally not not even that long ago, an Israeli drone, so this is a drone that's flying high in the sky, it hit a car with you know, allegedly Hamas officials in it 30 minutes out of Beirut, so the capital of Lebanon. So Israelis are just essentially doing what Obama was doing back in the day with Biden under their administration prior to Trump coming to power in, in, in the US, where they would indiscriminately breach sovereignty, send their drones to fly over foreign soil and just decide to bomb certain targets because, hey, it's justified. But this is what Israel is doing in Beirut. Of course, the Hamas official they were aiming for didn't, wasn't killed, but the drone hit another car, which... And, and now there are two casualties. The car is burnt to a crisp. The people inside, of course, couldn't even take their seatbelts off before they died a very painful death from the explosion and burning. So this is like the Israeli status quo. It's completely disrespecting your neighbors. And we saw this, we saw this, of course, uh, the U.S. is conducting very similar affairs, but that's because the U.S. Uh, you know the U.S. government cooperates so closely with Israel, so it's probably the same strategies that they're using. So, you know, it's not like you, we shouldn't really look at Hezbollah and say, well, what they're doing is provoking Israel. No, Israel, it's a two-way street here. Both both sides are actually fighting a full-on war, and Israel is not looking to seek peace with its northern neighbor at all in this conflict. Israel is not looking to descale or de-radicalize itself in its uh, attitude towards its um, Arabic uh, Muslim neighbors at all. It's not just about the Palestinians, it's about dominating everyone who's around with, you know, with, as you as said, for threats towards Egypt, right? They're saying hundreds of planes. Like, what are they exactly, you know, what are they alluding to here? Mind you, Israel is a nuclear power as well. So it's the danger here for its 
Arabic neighbors is severe. It's not 1967 anymore. It's not those wars that took place in the 20th century. Israel is equipped at this point to deal lasting damage, especially like we've seen how much care the IDF and the, the cabinet, the executive of the Israeli government has taken in regards to civilian casualties. The deaths will be, you know, there will there'll be a lot of deaths. And frankly, like two two points I wanted to make, Conrad, was one, the the black swan capabilities of, of this particular event taking place, not just Houthi related, but also if you look at the Egyptian border, when Rafa and when that when that corridor is breached by Israeli troops, which undoubtedly it will be, right, because they will be auditing and checking everyone on the ground for membership of, you know, being members of Hamas, things like that, that'll be, that'll be taking place. Those Egyptian troops on the border, when they see their Sunni Muslim, uh, you know, compatriots, allies, their cousins, their brothers, actually across the border, you know, when they see explosions take place, will they maybe breach orders and just drive their tanks in order to stop these atrocities from taking place without actually taking, you know, without any orders? They're just going to be like, okay, screw it. I'm just going to go in and actually protect my uh, my brothers across the border. Similar to how Russians went into Donetsk and Lugansk to actually, you know, a lot of Russians volunteered to fight against the Ukrainian liberals, neo-Nazis, and CIA agents and mercenaries against the Ukrainian army in 2014 and onwards without actually asking permission from the Russian government or the Russian Federation. Maybe maybe we'll see Egyptians actually taking that step forward and perhaps this will provoke a larger conflict. I'm not sure. I think, I think that's a very like, key point that needs to be made because we've seen black swan events, we've seen false flags, we've seen provocations of various types throughout the 21st century. If anything, the 21st century is is an era of provocations where they stop Maidan's coups, riots in your country, and then they declare it to be a colored revolution. They go, you know, they go in and they reform you from the inside. So they look for pretexts, they look for legal excuses in order to act under certain circumstances, and this may be one of them. Uh, so I guess we're waiting for the Arab or Egyptian Strelkov to arise. We haven't seen person yet. But to me, it seems that the Israelis and the Jews are going to have a hard time putting, you know, this cat back in the bag because... Between Netanyahu having, you know, people in less political hot water than him are far to the right of him on how to respond to this. 60 plus percent of the Israeli public, according to Norman Finkelstein, thinks that the Israeli military isn't going hard enough on Gaza. So I don't really see how you just, I don't see how this ends in a peaceful two-state solution at all. I don't think that that, despite, you know, Biden and Saudi Arabia and these people that previously were more in the Israeli maximalist camp, despite the fact that the two-state solution in the 1967 borders, you know, like Saudi Arabia has now said that they want to enforce. I mean, Saudi Arabia has never said this before. Saudi Arabia, like before Operation Al-Aqsa flood started, they were on the verge of normalizing ties with Israel. Now they will only do that if the borders of a Palestinian state with the 1967 borders are reestablished with the capital in East Jerusalem. And now Biden is even seeming to signal that direction. It seems that the Israeli population is so far away from that that this can only lead to an expanded conflict because we're seeing people like they're bringing in people like javier malay you know this you know international extremely popular figure again it's it's his his international popularity is curious because again argentina isn't even you know the most populated country in south america but i mean even look at his tucker carlson interview it's almost at 500 million views the Putin interview, I don't even know if it's even hit 200 million yet, so it may eventually surpass it, but this Malay guy is a is an international phenomenon, and he shows up in Jerusalem, and he's just, man, he's just doing tricks on the wailing wall, he's just, he's crying, he's, you know, he's like shaking, I, I, I commented on X, I'm like, does this guy have a demon, like, is he possessed? It seems that 
he's just enraptured in this in this Kabbalistic blood and you know just this demand that you know from the Nile to the Euphrates these people just must control you know this slice of land that that is somehow you know just vital to Argentinian national interest and then of course he shows up at the I don't even know where this is somewhere in Jerusalem and he starts speaking and gives you know a little history lesson about how horrible horrible the destruction of the second temple was at the hands of the Roman Empire and how he supports the prophecies how the prophecies have been fulfilled about about a, a fox entering the holy of holies and all these sorts of things and how because these prophecies have happened he believes he will live to see you know the the reconstruction of the third temple and the fulfillment of all of these prophecies about the destruction of Al-Aqsa Mosque and whatnot it's like hold on this guy is the president of a majority Catholic country does he not know that he just basically called for the reign of the Antichrist and he says that he He's basically pledging his support to that, to that effort. And I think, you know, this character is is a clown beyond measure. And the fact that he goes to the 770 right after getting elected in Brooklyn, then he goes and does this, you know. But looking at the symbolism is very interesting. We've talked about the idea of Donald Trump possibly being some sort of messianic figure when it comes to the Jewish Antichrist in the Third Temple. We don't know what role that is. Some have accused him of being a type of Antichrist or the Antichrist himself. We're not saying that but look at malay he's been called the argentinian trump you know he was the sort of public entertainer he's got this crazy hair you know he's got the chabad connection of course we have jared kushner with trump i mean is this an, is this an even smaller form of typology and foreshadowing within the typology of all of this you know what i'm saying like it's showing you know what if these types of characters it's the sort of international we're gonna talk about this with the putin tucker interview and i'm gonna get into the Biden stuff as well, because it just seems that all these things are sort of being controlled by, again, we say world Jewry, but even more specifically here, you know, these this ultra-nationalist, ultra-Zionist Chabad, Lubavitch sect that whether they believe that they're still fulfilling, you know, whether is, they believe Rebbe Schneerson is hiding somewhere and actually did get resurrected, or that there's going to be actually an eighth, you know, rabbi of Chabad, you know, and that the prophecies weren't correct about it being Rebbe Schneerson, it seems that they are, you know, on, both, on all ends of the political spectrum, they're exercising total control because we see Biden, you know, there was that release of, from the special counsel showing that eight years ago, Biden was basically deemed unfit to stand trial by reason of dementia and mental decline in his age on these documents cases that he had all these classified documents from when he was vice president in his garage and all this other stuff. And then he decides to do a press conference and the press are suddenly so hostile and he accidentally says that Al-Sisi is the president of Mexico and that Mexico borders Gaza, you know, instead of Egypt, which of course we were just discussing, it's becoming one of the biggest stories in the region right now. And all of this happens and Biden is really facing calls even from within his own party. Democrats are talking about the 25th Amendment invoking this. And ultimately, this would lead to like a Kamala Harris being on the ticket, who's somehow even less popular than Biden. Of course, people are talking about Gavin Newsom, big Mike Obama, and, you know, these other characters. But I'm not convinced, per se. I think Biden is still the only person they have that could even remotely have a chance of even appearing to get enough votes to go up against Trump, which then they could, of course, help with cheating. But it seems to me that this is all coming not so much because they're realizing that electorally they need to get rid of Biden. It's happening because Biden is balking on his Zionist credentials and is supporting a ceasefire, is going against these Israeli settlers by issuing these executive orders. He's calling the response in Gaza, you know, overdone and all these other sorts of things. 
And again, maybe there's more things happening behind the scenes. There always is. But now with Saudi Arabia, of course, turning harder towards the popular Islamic position as opposed to the you know political position that favored Israel, it seems that we're gearing up for what will probably ultimately end up being a confrontation between Israel, the U.S., and then what is effectively the entire Muslim world as even the United Arab Emirates begins, like I said before, to disavow what Israel is doing right now. And of course, Malay representing this this cohort of international right-wing leaders that, again, we're going to talk about this with the Putin-Tucker interview, but frankly, Tucker Carlson himself seems to be kind of connected with. We have Malay, we have Bukele in El Salvador, we have Orban in Hungary, who Orban just blocked an EU order to sanction and go against the Israeli settlers in the West Bank. So you have him, and then of course we have Malay in Argentina, Trump obviously, and all these characters, and even Putin obviously, who just met with Beryl Lazar and the Chabad Lubavitch characters in Russia discussing hostages and the response to getting them back with Hamas and everything like that in the Gaza Strip. So there's this very interesting connection with Chabad Lubavitch and this international network of quote unquote conservative right wing leaders that all incidentally really, really support Israel and want them to do whatever they want to the Palestinians, and even in some cases to go full irredentist third temple and bring in the Antichrist. So it's it's an interesting idea we're going to explore even more. Of course, we're going to get into the Putin-Tucker interview, but the region continues to be the focus of the, focus of the Third World War right now. Yeah, 100%. I think one illusion that has been dispelled as of late has been the fact that, well, it's not just the religious... It's not just the religious them boys. It's not. It's not just the rabbis. I mean, it's it's not even them at all. It's it's just the it's the secular IDF hawks, right? It's these secular politicians working inside of Israel. It's the Zionists. It's these characters who we can name who are strictly political. It's like no, that's not the case. We've seen rabbis of all sorts of all colors carrying all kinds of flags alongside the flag of Israel, of course. Uh, Rabbi Osman from Ukraine, Rabbi Ber Lazar has traveled to Israel. They're all making these military-type pilgrimages in order to support the IDF and the army. And more recently, there's been a giant interview on one of the Russian channels between a big Russian libertarian, uh, Mikhail Svetov, who interviewed Richard Spencer recently as well. M- Mikhail Svetov was the uh, actual was the mediator in a debate between a Russian communist named Maxim Shevchenko with over a million subscribers and Rabbi Mikhail Finkel. It sounds very much like Jackson Hinkle, but very interestingly. Rabbi Mikhail Finkel is a Moscow-born, very well-spoken, super eloquent Russian rabbi who moved to Israel because of his Zionism. And this is a Hasidic, as a Kabad rabbi. And in this debate, it was such a heated debate, of course, the communist uh, Shevchenko was actually pro-Palestinian. Meanwhile, the rabbi was really strongly pro-Israeli. Debate ended up basically being a draw just because both both men were really well-spoken. But what was interesting about this debate, and only took place a couple of days ago, was that the rabbi actually showed such severe hatred for Palestine and the fact that he was arguing for essentially the complete deportation of like he knew his facts he knew every single mischievous thing that the palestinians or the so-called he called them the the arab invaders what they've done to the local jewish and the local orthodox jewish population of palestine of the middle east he knew about every single pogrom that's taken place encyclopedic knowledge these people remember things they hold grudges they don't have the same principles of forgiveness i mean they do have a principle of forgiveness but it's it's in a more scapegoatish form. It's not in the form of confession and actually letting go of your sins prior to communion. This is a different religion we're speaking about. Yeah, sure, they claim to be Abrahamic, but there's nothing of Abraham here. It's more of it's more of uh, other darker historical characters, more rabbinical, more Talmudic, 
and these people are not we need to understand this these are not people who venerate and worship god the father it's a different god that they're looking at here and they're looking for the antichrist coming so a very interesting perspective right to see rabbi actually be so vocal and he's like yes he's like don't worry maxim it's been a good debate but rafa will be taken and hamas will be destroyed entirely in just two weeks time and this debate will be completely useless because hamas will be annihilated and palestinians will be sent to egypt and it's like wow okay this is a, a huge russian uh, channel politically on youtube and they're just not afraid to say it even in russian this is like completely crazy and uh, viol a violence of a very next level with a religious context to it as well so just keep that in mind yeah, look Malay actually dance you know sort of gyrating on the wall crying having this re relationship with this idolist construct right that this wall is an idol of sort it's probably possessed by several demons we spoke about on one of our previous a hour episodes the fact that demons attach themselves to not just physical objects but also geographical places locations because of veneration of idols and other sinful things that the humans have done in that particular context and place in that atmosphere and habitat and so this wall is probably there's probably a lot of demons hanging out there and as we've seen from the lives of saints in the past like the great martyrs saint pantalimon saint catherine saint george saint dimitri when they enter a pagan temple or they hang around pagan idols the idols themselves fall apart it's this anti-magnetic sort of you know relationship here whereas with malay it's like the you know in the saints context, saint walks into the temple the temple falls apart around them because the demons leave they flee it's like it's a negation it's a rejection effect whereas with malay it's almost like the magnet of the wall the demons pull him in and he's completely like hands out doing a t-pose on the wall crying and like he's getting sucked into the the black hole here i mean it's a little bit esoteric but that's what it looked like it was like okay so he wants to be one with the wall he wants to be one with this particular satanic religion which is now promoting bloodshed on a very on, on a scale we have really haven't seen since the i would say you know probably the zionist cleansing of palestine and all, all those purges that took place in the genocide and, and naturally even the bolshevik revolution the red terror so these are events which took place in the last century but this is the first time we see israel we really getting unhinged really getting blood on their hands in this it's not the Israel that the, the, the church is. This is a false Zion we're talking about here. So really bad news. And you said Kabad being involved behind all of this. Yes, absolutely. We've seen the same Kabad people. They seem to be linked in some, it's almost like the Sadducees and the Pharisees. I'm going to quote Leonid Balotian, who very important character in terms of Russian Orthodox Christian uh, eschatological writing as well as political writing. He looks, he, he used to work for Russian Idea, Russian Linia. These are really big publications in the 1990s, very big monarchist writer. But he said that it's almost as if modern them boys, them you know, jury in the world is almost split into these two sects, just like in we read about in the New Testament when you have Pharisees and Sadducees. It's almost as if the Pharisees are these rabbinical types and then you have the sadducees who are more so the key the more of the bankers they they look secular right but in fact they're actually really tied the pharisees and sadducees work together in this alliance you know behind maybe like a secret priesthood in the background maybe a saint sanhedrin of sorts maybe i mean this is a bit conspiratorial but perhaps this is what's happening this is why people like netanyahu they may appear they i mean he just looks like a typical middle eastern politician like physically physiognomy wise but behind the scenes perhaps he does have his own rabbi who advises him on policy and things like that so i think this is what needs to be considered and you know and when the when the veil is actually unfurled and we actually see behind the scenes who the wizard of oz is all right at the end of the road in the emerald city uh, i think it'll probably be someone with a hat and very pe peculiar hair it won't be it won't be like a secular looking politician fellow
No, that's that's real. And of course, just to finish this up on this in Malay and everything, is it really a coincidence that, again, this whole thing starts Operation Al-Aqsa Flood in response to like a mass Talmudic rabbinic ritual in the Al-Aqsa Mosque itself? Hamas launches its attack. And then in his first, you know, trip to Israel in support of this since being elected president of Argentina, he comes, Malay goes there and invokes the destruction of the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy to build a third temple. Like, this isn't any kind of coincidence. It seems to me that this group that Dimitri talked about with the funny hair, specifically the Lubavitchers, that they have this sort of network of, of chosen that they have to kind of compete in this international this international rite and dance where they all come and they give the speeches and they touch the wall and they give the money and they counter signal and they do this, that, or the other, and it'll all ultimately lead to this, you know, this final result, which will, I guess, be some kind of one world government, some kind of antichrist, some kind of new religion of the future, as Father Seraphim Rose writes about. So we're on to these people. We're everyone that touches the wall, everybody that puts on the hat, you know, we're going to report about it here. So don't miss out on it because we're we're on it. We're going to make sure that nobody accidentally thinks someone's based when they're not based. Look, we like Orban. We appreciate what he does, but like he's like totally operated on by the Mossad. Like the whole party and operation is approved by Israel. And there's many other cases, so so don't 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 fall for it. But unless there's anything else to say on this, of course we're hearing reports that the invasion into Rafa has already been greenlit, and they're just waiting for the political go ahead. So. Any day now, we may have to do a live stream or something to cover some of that. But if that happens before you're hearing this, you know, you may have already heard it. So we'll see how all of that goes. It appears that Rafa is the next thing. I'm surprised how willing they are to continue to go south and south and south and provoke Egypt while also willing to keep pushing north into Hezbollah and against Lebanon. They really seem, they, they seem genuinely assured that if this thing gets much more dramatic from the other side, from the Muslim world, that the U.S. is just going to go in and help them. And that's where Trump comes in, because this election is getting closer, and it seems that even the media, you know, the, the Jewish media, who, you know, they they never saw a war for Israel they didn't like to support, they seem to be turning on Biden in that regard. And is that going to foreshadow some kind of some kind of eschatological connection between the conflict in Israel and this election? Well, I've been asserting that that is likely, so we're going to be watching that very closely. But of course... You want to hear us talk about the Putin Tucker interview? Of course, check out my reaction. I got totally shut down on YouTube about 15 minutes in to covering it. We had hundreds of viewers, so very disappointing censorship, very annoying because there was others that were totally allowed to watch and react to it. So I don't know what really happened there. I don't know. What, I, don't, I doubt Tucker's people were copyright striking anything, but maybe they were. Who knows? But I watched the whole thing. I've seen a lot of, I haven't watched it fully twice again, but I've seen a lot of sections and clips and went back and scrubbed through. And it was, it was very interesting. It was both from a content perspective and from a dynamic perspective. And the reactions were very interesting. Some people feel one way, others are more polarized and people are calling each other stupid for thinking it was one thing or the other. But there's some good memes as well. A lot of people, the the image of Putin holding up the, the folder and, you know, saying that, you know, and here we go back to the time of Melchizedek or, you know, whatever interesting era of ancient history you want to make a joke about somebody giving a tedious history lesson starting from somewhere. Because, you know, he did say, oh, let me go for one minute, 30 seconds. And then he went for 30 minutes on some, basically starting in <laughs> like the 8th century when, when some of the earliest stages of 
you know, of the tribal existence of the Russian people were forming into statehood and nationhood and empire. But Dmitry, I guess I'll ask you first of all, what are your overall impressions? You weren't able to join me on the stream, so this will be the people's first look into your mind. What's what's your reaction to this interview? Well, Conrad, I was actually watching your stream. So just as the viewers probably were first on YouTube and then, of course, translated to the Twitter space and just, yeah, I mean, general uh, reaction and first and foremost, I think positive. This is a continuation of the Putin patriotic line we saw really emerge in strength in 2022 in February when he gave his 45-minute monologue. In 2021, Putin published his 5,000-word Substack type essay on Russian history. And I think recently, since about since the mid-2000s, right, since about the Obama administration, Putin really has been improving his historical knowledge. Hence, he gave the half-an-hour exposition at the beginning because he really wanted to get it off his chest and because I think Putin actually, in his spare time these days, reads a lot more history books than he did early in his career as president. I think this is a new thing for him. It's maybe even a way of him re reconnecting with his orthodox Russian heritage through that Soviet baggage, which of course he no doubt accumulated even during his time as a KGB officer in the past, which, you know, you kind of forced into that sort of, you know, Komsomol type ideology naturally back in the day. But Putin, right, the interview started off pretty strong. Putin did sound somewhat condescending. Tucker Carlson, right? He wasn't, I think, expecting Putin to give this lengthy exposition. He probably had a lot more questions prepared for him. But given that the interview, you notice how the interview came to an end at around the two hour mark, it's because Tucker realized it was long. And so even the questions which he still had preserved for Putin probably weren't, uh, you know, there was just no time to ask them. It was just to be rude. So I think Putin actually saved himself some questions by giving this historical account. Now, the historical account, I do need to comment on, it's completely factual. It aligns exactly right with the lives of saints, with Orthodox Russian tradition. So for those listening familiar with Russian history, or even Russian church history, like characters like Bogdan Khmelnytsky were, you know, these people were known as protectors of orthodoxy in their respective lands. Uh, Bogdan Khmelnytsky defended the uh, Zaporozhye Orthodox, you know, Novorossiya, I mean, this before Novorossiya came together, but he defended the Russian people of those Ukrainian lands from Uniates, from Polish incursion, and he saved a lot of people from, let's just say it, uh, from them boys, from th th those particular people we spoke about in our earlier segment about Israeli politics who were exploiting, uh, Putin didn't mention these details, but uh, this is, they, everyone knows who Bogdan Khmelnytsky is, you can search him up, and those were the documents he gave to Tucker Carlson, as well as a gift, which I found very interesting. Generally, though, Conrad, the sentiment was positive. I did see a lot of very interesting facts and uh, allusions brought in throughout the discussion. One of the most probably striking, uh, because, mind you, a lot of this information that Putin actually provided Tucker, most knowledgeable viewers and listeners would probably already know, but it's quite nice to hear the president say them again and kind of rehash them for us, which means that he's still standing on his line that he began in 2022 or even prior to that. But what was interesting is at the end when he spoke about the alleged spy that was being held by Russian authorities and the fact that there'll be a spy exchange, he mentioned a certain uh, Russian patriot who assassinated a, you know, a murderer, a terrorist in Berlin, in the in the capital of the European city. He didn't name him by, by name, but most likely Putin was alluding to the Russian. Now, you know, he's being held in German custody. There's a man called Vadim Krasikov. He was driving on a bicycle past this Chechen terrorist in Berlin in 2019, and he shot the Chechen terrorist out of, with a pistol. So it was essentially a hit job, an assassination, similar to that which was carried out you know, on Trotsky back in the day by Soviet authorities. Now, Trotsky, as we know, is the red criminal, is the, is the red demon of the revolution. I'm not saying what 
was done to him was completely justified and legal, but actually, yes, it was justified, similar to what Boris Kaverda committed over Pyotr Voikov in Poland in, in Warsaw in 1927 when he shot him with a pistol. I mean, these are political assassinations, so you know, just what justification can be given, but still, Putin essentially said he admitted that Russia potentially was behind this sending this particular assassin to kill this Islamic Chechen terrorist in the middle of a, a city and this sort of transparency, Conrad, uh, the transparency in such a difficult time, I found somewhat refreshing because we never saw the past Russian, the past Russian Soviet regime ever admit to any political assassinations carried out. And, and that was, it was quite interesting. Even the Soviet regime, it never admitted to actually assassinating Trotsky until 1991, when documents were exposed showing that, yes, actually Stalin did send people to Mexico to take Trotsky out. The official narrative was always that Trotsky was killed by his own people which wasn't the fact, like, you know, the case was that com the communist government didn't send people to Mexico. And Putin here is just alluding to it, but he's saying, look, Russia does have interests abroad and it will take out these criminals, these uh, Islamic terrorists on soil of other countries if need be, especially uh, people such as such as the one that Mr. Krasikov took out in Berlin. So that, I thought that was a curious detail. Just in regards to Putin's argumentation, because this was where Tucker really pushed him, besides this uh, spy situation, this discussion which took place at the end of the interview, Putin really was pushed by Tucker on the question of, well, was the February 2022 invasion of Ukraine, the beginning of the estimate, was it justified? And Putin pushed against Tucker, pushed back, and he said, look, I, you know, oh, is this a serious interview? I mean, is this a serious discussion or is this an interview? And he openly stated that, look, we're going to, he's going to provide the facts, the history, the historical references regarding Russian-Ukrainian relations. And he's going to allow, essentially, Putin allowed the audience to build their own natural, organic, personal, come to their own personal conclusions on why the SMO was justified. He didn't himself provide a justification, which he probably could have. He did allude, again, to and implied that the rise of neo-Nazism has caused and, promoted and prompted Russia to act, but he could have made... I think a substantive case if he wanted to. I'm not sure why he didn't, but he could have justified the entire SMO verbally to Tucker Carlson, to the broader American English-speaking audience, and it probably would have been convincing as well, I'll be honest. He could have said, one, they're persecuting orthodoxy, they're promoting degeneracy. Two, we actually were wrong for trusting the Ukrainian government. We were wrong for trusting Poroshenko with Minsk 1 and 2. Those were lies. We were wrong for trusting Zelensky in 2019. We were wrong for congratulating Zelensky for winning the election in 2019. We were wrong for all these things because the people of Donetsk continued to be bombed for eight or nine years and Russia made a mistake of actually not beginning the SMO earlier. Putin could have said that and maybe admitted, you know, personally to the mistake of the Russian government. And we probably would have forgiven him and been like, yeah, but at least you fixed the problem in February 2022 and you've went in to in order to stop the lawlessness which was taking place in eastern Ukraine. And actually as a you know, the SMO would have, could have been painted as a peacekeeping humanitarian type mission. So, but Putin didn't make those conclusions. This is me speaking on his behalf. I think he just gave a historical account, gave a few facts and allowed the English speaking audience of Tucker Carlson to kind of come to these conclusions himself. And when Tucker, you know, a giga chat answer, Conrad would have been, well, when Tucker says, well, should all countries return to 1654 borders? And Putin could have said, well, I don't know about that. All countries, but Russia definitely should, you know. But again, something funny like that definitely wouldn't take place. The, the interview generally was very polite and we are yet to see the, the fallback from it, I think domestically as well as internationally, like what the reaction will be like, given you know, a week or two from now. Well, it was somewhat polite, but at the same time, I would say in some ways, Putin was definitely, you know, putting power moves on Tucker. He was a little rude at certain times. He referenced Tucker's show not being very serious. 
he made a remark about Tucker not getting into the CIA. I don't know if he's aware of the discourse around Tucker, <laughs> you know, being a suspected, you know, asset, you know, some people being suspicious of his background with his father, you know, being the former head of Voice of America and other things like that. I don't know if Putin was, you know, throwing something to those people. I don't know if he's that aware, but... And then he did the whole, I'm going to give you a minute of historical background and then talk for 30 minutes, basically ignoring Tucker trying to interrupt and get back to talk about the more modern day stuff, which, you know, that was kind of Chad. It was like a flex, but it kind of revealed that I don't know if his main goal in this was to make a great case to, you know, the American conservative audience about why Russia's doing what it's doing. That's not to say that he wasn't giving people the tools to deduce a civilizational understanding of the conflict, which is what he's in general been trying to communicate. I've seen Michael Tracy saying that this is all a cope and how, you know, none of those kinds of things really matter. I don't, I don't agree with that at all. I think that those things are very important, but at the same time you do, yes, you need to address the actual situations at hand. And I would say that that was kind of what Tucker got out of it. He got a bit of a, he didn't exactly get the clarity I think he was hoping to get, he got a bit more of a a kind of power move on the fa on the behalf of Putin showing his intelligence and showing, you know, that he's able to I think that one of the implications was almost that like, you know, you as an American can never like really understand, right? Like that's kind of that that's a little bit of the implication. And then you look at the fact that he didn't I mean, that, that was from Tucker's perspective, from a listener's perspective, somebody that covers this, somebody that is aware of the latest information that any person that is paying attention in theory could get a hold of. We didn't really learn anything new, right? Like, if anything, some would be disappointed in the fact that Putin didn't... When Tucker effectively posed him the question, are you willing to say NATO wins, you know, here to end this now, he didn't say no, you know, he basically left that door open. And while, of course, he didn't say anything about ceding territory, it seems that at the very least he is still willing to take nothing more than Crimea and the four oblasts in their entirety. And while I still don't think that will be the end result, especially once we get into some of this Zelensky stuff, I still think that that is a little bit disappointing, especially from a patriotic Russian perspective, I, I would imagine. Yeah, I think a lot more could have been could have been said. A stronger case from Putin's perspective could have been given. He could have naturally like elected to take the, the stance of previous Russian saints and make a very strong case against the persecution and the fact that the entire Ukrainian territory still needed denazification, demilitarization. And denazification not just because there was a lot of World War II illusions, I'm sure you've noticed, but he could have mentioned the fact that, well, it's not just because they're right-wing neo-Nazis, but it's the fact that they're Banderite anti-Orthodox groups within Ukraine which need to be taken out in order for all these churches and monasteries to be saved. And he could have said, well, Tucker, you've covered the persecution. There could have been such a powerful case being made here, which would have you know, garnered the support of Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox Christians around the world. And no one could have argued against it. And if if anyone would argue against it, they'd be they'd, they'd be labeled a Talmudic person. Okay. So it's really that could have that could have been very, very strongly made. It was missed. Um, from Tucker's perspective, I'm not sure if he even had these questions prepared, but he could have asked, you know, could have asked the question about Prigozhin possibly. Could have asked because that was, in our opinion, in our analysis of 2023, that was one of the top four major events which took place last year. So, which we still don't have any clarity on at all. You know, we, we did speak about transparency and things, but on this particular issue, given the death of Polkovnik Utkin, Colonel Dmitry Utkin, the, one of the most acclaimed Russian heroes in recent years, the GRU, Spetsnaz, Wagner, uh, Wagner chief soldier, this guy was like Mr. Captain America, Captain Russia, basically, and he died in the plane explosion. I mean, no answers regarding that. It's just moving on. But the one positive thing I will say, I think 
we would agree is that Putin at least realizes that the persecution of the church is a major factor in uh, in this entire conflict. I think and he said this right at the end as the interview mm -hmm. was closing. Right, he did say that the church is what, and he said the Russian Orthodox Church, which is correct because that is that is the the Ukrainian Orthodox Church is simply a branch, a jurisdictional uh, municipality of the broader Russian Orthodox Church. You know the saints are called Russian Orthodox saints. Those saints of Ukraine are not called the, the Ukrainian Orthodox saints, right? They they themselves did not know what Ukraine was back in the day when they lived on this earth and they served God here. But Putin emphasized that the Russian Orthodox Church was the common common thing which held the spirits of both brotherly nations together. And also, let's not let's include Belarusians as well here because they're also united in this triumvirate type nationhood, nineteenth century idea of Eastern Slavs, whatnot. But Again, yeah, that was emphasized at the end of the fact that, that this is why Zelensky and his government is trying to disassemble, attack the church in Ukraine in order, you know, it was because, you know, to destroy the unity between Russian and Ukrainian people. And it's good that he said that. And Tucker naturally already knew that, but maybe more emphasis could have been placed. There was that weird, uh, again, that weird disclaimer, like I do have to point this out. I, I have a real ear for this sort of stuff, but this bizarre, like whenever Orthodox Christianity is brought up in a lot of the speeches of Russian Federation officials. This is unfortunate. And I mean, World War Now listeners, you guys probably know, we, we look at things a little bit more critically than maybe the average uh, the average talk show, especially when it comes to Orthodox Christianity and its, it's interaction with politics. So we're maybe a little bit more um, OCD about it. But notice how whenever Orthodox Christianity is mentioned, there needs to be a disclaimer made about all the other traditional religions and Islam and Buddhism. And naturally, Judaism jumps out with its little like black hat of, out of the sewer as well, and it gets referenced. So it's like, maybe that isn't required. When I look at the speeches of Nicholas II or some of the other Russian Tsars, when I look at some of the manifestos and decrees that were published in newspapers, I, I don't see references to this weird multicultural uh, cosmopolitan Russia, even though those all those cultures existed and much more. There was a lot more sects and different religions and even uh, even different pagan pagan things ex that existed in the Russian Empire, but they were minorities to the point where they did not require any mentioning on a broader spectrum. And unfortunately, Putin still does that thing where he says, like, Russian Orthodoxy plus all these other things. You don't have to add the plus. We don't need that disclaimer. We're not stupid. It's clear that Russia is built primarily on Christianity, on a Christian foundation. Without Orthodox Christianity, there would be no Russia, period. There, was, there would be Khazaria or there'd be some Golden Horde or some other Islamic Northern Caliphate existing in Siberia or maybe even just a, a land colonized by Western Europeans, a land of, I don't know, Northern Aboriginals. Without Orthodox Christianity, that's what it would be. So I think that's the reality and that needs to, and that's emphasized somewhat by the work we do here. We try to like bring that factor into it. This is, you know, there's the religion underpins everything that takes place in that part of the world. Nothing really truly is secular, nothing is atheistic. Um, but yes, uh, generally, I think you're correct, Conrad. It was slightly condescending. And hopefully American listeners will take the good out of it rather than view themselves as like being looked at by Putin as these dumb, you know, McDonald's eaters or whatever, like who don't understand international relations. This is not, I think that wasn't the goal, although that maybe could have been what how some people saw it, which I think would be unfortunate. I think we'll see. We'll see after the fact that, in comparison, because Putin is compared a lot to Joe Biden, probably these two most powerful presidents in in the world at the moment. And the fact that Joe Biden looks so decrepit, senile, and old is really 
uplifting Putin to the point where maybe some of these other negative things that was, you know, not negative things that were said, but negative things which could be taken out of the interview or out of the general stance of the Russian Federation politics could be somewhat ignored, right? It could be swept under the rug, perhaps. But the, just the fact, the sheer fact that Biden is so much worse and so much crazier, even though Biden is not a Russian politician, he's American, but, you know, these two figures are kind of weighed up against one another. Yeah, I think in many ways, Tucker you know, Putin may have done this on purpose, but Tucker seemed a little bit, you know, outclassed in a sense. And obviously, no American is going to have an extensive knowledge of Russian history. But, you know, the facial expressions, everything going on, there's some interesting analysis that can be done there, of course. I know Tucker, and I know while he was in Russia, Tucker also interviewed Edward Snowden. It appears he went to some exposition of some kind, he did a few interesting things. And of course, a lot of people in Russia recognized him, took pictures. So, it was an interesting trip. I hope that I'll most more than likely, not more than likely, pretty much guaranteed I'm going to be back in Russia at the end of this month. So hopefully some some interesting things can be observed. But speaking of Russia, Ukraine and all of that, which is, of course, what the interview was about, Zelensky has made a very dramatic shift. Obviously, we've been anticipating the potential dismissal of Zeluzhny for a while now. And it, of course, finally happened. He's been replaced by Sirsky, who was one of the two people that we speculated were the options. It was between him and Budanov. And it seems that Zelensky chose Sirsky. The general analysis seems to be that Budanov would have been his demise, as he would have ultimately been more in bed with the U.S. and the West and would have been able to perhaps lead some kind of overthrow of Zelensky, whereas Sirsky, deeply unpopular in the military, is responsible for some of the most disastrous offensives and battles and fronts in the war so far. He has a very high death toll on his under his command. Many people die when he sends them into battle, and he's not very popular per se, and he himself is Russian as opposed to Zeluzhny being a full-blooded you know, Ukrainian. So the possibility that he could perhaps lead a popular uprising against Zelensky is less likely. Of course, there's already been calls for a second Maidan. There's protests in Kiev against Zelensky for dismissing Zeluzhny. And now, of course, the ball is kind of in Zeluzhny's court on what he wants to do. But I am wondering if Zelensky took advantage of a possible distraction that people were looking at the Tucker-Putin interview, and then he's like, all right, let's get this Zeluzhny debacle over and done with. While some people are watching this this interview and listening to an autistic breakdown of history of, of Rus and whatnot, but of course I think this has been a long time coming, obviously, and the military situation is getting to a point where, of course, the U.S. aid has come to a halt and we don't know if or when more is coming, and Zelensky realizes that he's going to have to kind of dig in his heels and resist the inevitable political palace intrigue and battles that are going to come as the front line starts to collapse more and more. So, Dimitri, I'm wondering your thoughts on on Sirsky and the current, you know, people, Konstantin Martelli made the joke, you know, the Russian Tatar horde has officially invaded the Rada and Kiev and the, you know, the executive branch with the Jewish Zelensky, the Russian Sirsky, you know, the Jewish Tatar Umarov, and all of these others. It seems that, you know, the Ukrainian ethnostate has finally fallen. Well, lest we forget, the uh, Kazarian Kaganate was a multicultural entity, a very you know, strongly diverse. It, it had Russian mercenaries working for it. It had Turkic Islamic mercenaries, had even a contingent of Arabs actually working for it for money. And naturally, the elites were of a certain uh, group, 
as well. Um, you know, definitely uh, conducting themselves in very disproportionately anti-Christian manners throughout the uh, 8th and 9th centuries before they were destroyed by the Russian state that Putin actually referenced in his speech. But this replacement, I think you mentioned, it's a great analysis, the fact that Sirsky and Zelensky are essentially counterweights. They're, they're very similar figures. Zelensky is unpopular in terms of civil politics, in terms of electoral value. He has to, you know, the election will probably even be cancelled this year because of the fact that he's gutted Ukrainian society, just as Sirsky has gutted the Ukrainian army. You, I mean, Millions of people have fled Ukraine. There's been no peace deal. There's been no real attempts at a peace deal, which is one of the things Putin discussed in, in the interview with Tucker Carlson. The, the fact that the Turkey agreements didn't go to plan, plan in 2022 and the Minsk agreements as well. I mean, this is all the faults of, I mean, these Turkey agreements that you know, could have taken place, these are all the faults of Zelensky and what happened at Bakhmut and other places on the Eastern Front in the Donetsk Oblast with the Ukrainian army getting completely decimated were, of course, the faults of Sirsky. And so General Sirsky, his uh, popularity being so low, he won't be able to overthrow Zelensky. But Zelensky, at the same time, his popularity is not the highest either. So he won't be able to really... It, it's almost as if the Americans were whoever's orchestrating this charade and this circus from the background. They know that, you know, everyone needs a weakness and, and there's a there's a book uh, for each one of these people with a bunch of their uh, their weaknesses and their their sort of compromising materials. They're all stacked against them, so they they, they are prepared to take out either one of these figures. Both are compromised. Both have have certain degrees of unpopularity amongst them, which. I, I think speaks volumes. And Zaluzhny, his future, um, will he go to serve as some sort of NATO advisor? Will he go to give lectures on military? I mean, he he did it recently. <laughs> Zaluzhny, last year in December, did submit, uh, did become a, a doctor of like philosophy, I think. <laughs> uh, he gave his, uh, he you know, submitted his PhD, he received his doctorate degree. So, I mean, who knows, right? Zaluzhny is a scholar. <laughs> so, uh, he could go to lecture at Oxford along alongside uh, Chubais and other uh, figures who left Russia and Ukraine. Who knows what his the future has for him? But but Ukraine, yeah, Ukraine is still well in the hands of NATO, and the only thing that probably could actually undermine this entire this like satanic um, golem construction that was built by NATO and its forces and the CIA would be an internal Maidan, right? Of two point So the actual so shall we say Judeo-Ukrainians themselves, Timoshenko, uh, Poroshenko, Klitschko, these people who are of you know, dubious ancestry, Poroshenko, Waltzman, Waltzman, Timoshenko, things like people like that, former politicians who existed before, they, they were part of this evil Ukrainian conglomerate which was bombing Donetsk and Lugansk for years before Zelensky even came to power. They're itching, they want, they want to turn at the trigger, I think. And they want to turn, they saw the popularity Zelensky was receiving from the mainstream media. Zelensky has become literally like Time, you know, Time magazine's like man of the year, I think, like in 2022. So Zelensky's so popular. They want some of that as well. These people are greedy. These people are demonic. They're not Christian. Uh, you know, they're letting their sins run free. And so one of those sins is naturally jealousy and greed. And they want what Zelensky has. So an internal coup, absolutely possible. They could begin a new Maidan. New protests would be completely justified too. Frankly, that's the thing. Would a Ukrainian Maidan be justified? Yes, it would, because Ukrainian, the rights of the Ukrainian people have been completely, you know, it's like, don't tread on me, but they've been not, not just treaded on, they've been stomped into the curb at this point. Any sort of rights, even the most basic, even if we don't believe in liberal democracy and, you know, human rights being a UN sort of weird construction, the Ukrainian people have been demoralized, humiliated, embarrassed, and been sent to the front lines under the leadership of Zelensky, Sirsky, and this, like, weird... Tatar, uh, Rustam Umerov, right? And Reznikov, who, Reznikov, I don't even need to mention that last name. And 
his particular contributions, the previous minister of defense for Ukraine. These people, they're all butchers. It's not just Sirsky who's in charge. All of these people contributed to the depths of millions, not the depths of millions, but millions, depths of hundreds of thousands and the displacement of millions of Ukrainians over the last year and a half. It's not the fault of Putin. It's not the fault of the SMO. These people were planning for this internal genocide for a while now. And so this replacement, it speaks it speaks volumes, but the fact that Zelensky is still in power means that the powers that be the globalists behind the scenes uh, still see Zelensky as a very valuable asset. Zaluzhny, not so much, but Zelensky, they need the actor in place. They need that. He's the main actor in this play. He's the protagonist of this uh, clownish satanic story, and they still want to play him out until the end. Well, and the cast of characters really just denotes that the ball is really in Zeluzhny's court. Poroshenko has, you know, been calling on Zelensky to step down and really, you know, waving the hammer against him for a while now. But without somebody like Zeluzhny, who has, you know, got recent clout, has much more popularity in the war effort than other figures, you know, without his sort of banner, that Poroshenko isn't able to do anything. Of course, there's the talk that Klitschko, Poroshenko, Zeluzhny could unite the nationalists uh, that are fed up with Zelensky and, you know, get him out of there. And then there's, of course, the other side of these things. You hear about Timoshenko and that her and Poroshenko, how they are at odds with one another and how she is perhaps hoping to stick out a position that, from a nationalist perspective, is willing to go to the negotiating table. Of course, all of these perspectives would be trying to say who hates Putin more, one of them saying that we need to cut him off now and, you know, to keep as much territory as we can before he gets more, the other saying that saying that is traitorous and that we need to keep pushing for even Crimea, you know, people discussed Zeluzhny taking pictures with all sorts of right sector and Azov leaders with flags that say things like all of Ukraine, no negotiations and other such slogans and whatnot. So it seems Zeluzhny, if he wants, would be able to rally some of these, you know, ultra deluded characters that want to see this thing through to the end, even if it means total Ukrainian death, I guess. But as Sirsky moves in, uh, we may see a Russian push in Kharkov. Uh, there's apparently Zeluzhny was against Sirsky's push in the Kharkov region in general because while they were able to gain the only meaningful territorial gains they've had in the war since Russia's move at the end of February in 2022, it, it, it de depleted their military so much that it seems that that may be the very reason why the you know, the summer counteroffensive towards the south was a complete failure because they had lost too many critical and experienced soldiers and units retaking, you know, all of the Kharkov regions and the areas that were basically unprotected after Russia pulled troops from Kiev in the midst of the Istanbul agreements and whatnot. And, you know, Putin made big reference to the Istanbul agreements and whatnot and really really wanted to make it clear that that was probably the clearest message he sent to an American audience was that he was totally willing to end this during the Istanbul agreements. And again, amidst all of this, both sides, whether it was people critical of the interview or not, I think have the wrong perspective, which, again, we believe the only real perspective that makes sense from worldview level thinking is, you know, that Putin has his political ideas and whatnot, but at the end of the day, you know, the Lord and the Holy Spirit, and we do believe the Holy Spirit is present in the Russian Orthodox Church, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, that that is going to ultimately have the last say when maps are drawn and when people live and die. That's, well, of course, men, you know, sometimes their machinations make it one way or the other. I think that there's only so much that can be truly gathered by just observing what everybody's motivations are and then the power politics behind it. Of course, that's fascinating. That's what we do here on the show. But 
I think the prophecies are just as just as relevant, and they've been just as on point as any kind of political predictor, if not more, so far. So I think it's important to recognize that the civilizational nature of this isn't just about a history lesson. It's about the current workings of of spirits, entities, and of course God Himself, and that's that's going to have drastic effects, especially as this conflict really seems that it's going to be fundamentally tied up in all of this stuff going on in the Middle East and the Third Temple and what will ultimately be a one of the biggest events that will again, we don't we may not be the event that brings about the Antichrist, but we're very much seeing the early stages of what what a world community looks like and what people that identify as citizens of the world, how they react to mass events. And of course, it would make sense that those mass events, you know, in a very Pajoian sense not just saying this because I myself am a geocentrist, but, you know, that area is the center of the universe. So, of course, as we move closer to the end of things, it would make sense that, you know, we get back to the beginning in that regard. But I've gotten, I'm sorry, I didn't know, I didn't mean to get that esoteric here on everybody on the show. But again, in the midst of all of this shakeup in Ukraine, we are always awaiting that, that, that Russian push. And the Tucker interview didn't exactly, the Tucker Putin interview didn't exactly give us any insights on any potential future military moves from Russia. And of course, perhaps it would be ridiculous to just spill the spaghetti in an interview like that. But, you know, it is. it was interesting that he really was keeping it pretty close to the chest in that regard. But of course, Dmitry, I want to hear some of your thoughts, if you have anything on what I just said. But we've seen some pretty crazy videos that the persecutions continue very dramatically in in ukraine and we're seeing churches being seized people being beaten and whatnot all while the ecumenical patriarch both turns the other way and continues to spread the same tentacles of schism and fake autocephaly across the russosphere in estonia lithuania and even now interfering with stuff in the macedonian church Absolutely. I think you mentioned, I mean, it's really correct to make allusions and to analyze what's happening in the world through a religious lens. I think that's the only actual way to view politics these days is not viewing it simply as a realist and as a secular person would really, and you don't, it would leave a lot of, a lot of things on the table, frankly, and naturally wouldn't probably paint the most likely perspective of what future events could transpire. Because again, we could maybe calculate based on the, based on the, the generacy occurring in a certain country or the fact that a certain country is generally pious just as saint justinian did back in the day in the roman empire during the earthquakes and and the huge plague which took place in the sixth century when he you know frankly accused he just openly stated that lgbtq type behavior which was taking place in the roman empire was the fault of the plague and the earthquakes and all the calamities actually affecting the eastern roman empire and the byzantine people so like these effect these sinful effects in society collective social falls they do affect people on a collective level and you know in, in terms of biblical types you know we do see typologies we see like sirsky himself right sirsky is a judas he's he's a russian an ethnic russian born in a russian family who chose to become ukrainianized chose to become an enemy not just to the russian people but even his own now uh newly falsely created ukrainian nation and now he's simply like a double traitor right and then we see other typologies like like President Putin, possibly a Paul turning into a Saul, but I think 
uh, as was as we're seeing this SMO go on and his very lengthy presidency, we are looking for maybe Putin to be like a maybe like a prophet Samuel type figure who will bring in the figure of the next David, right? The potential you know foreshadowing of a Russian Tsar who will come soon after, so that we can actually get on the road. Prophetically speaking, you mentioned like these are the prophecies we speak about. The saints talk about a Russian Orthodox Tsar coming to power who will set things straight. We are maybe waiting for that King Saul moment where King Saul actually, uh, you know, does, makes a lot of, you know, geopolitical moves, some mistakes, some good things. But in the end, we are waiting for that King David. And you know, sp speaking of King David's and figures like that, Strelkov, lots of news about him potentially going to the SMO. Gabriel de Roshan at the time has also been announced. This is the descendant of Nicholas I, the Russian Orthodox Emperor. Gabriel de Roshan on the front lines of the of Donetsk People's Republic has actually been promoted to a more senior leadership position. So he's actually in charge of a few military squads. He's not, no longer on the front lines as a machine gunner, as an infantryman. He served his time as each one of these, yeah, each, each one, in each one of these roles since 2014-15 on the front lines of the Ukrainian conflict himself. This is like a very exceptional young man since the time he was 18. So he's literally grown up from the time he's 18 to now 27, 28, fighting for Russian interests, fighting for Orthodox interests in Novorossiya. It's actually incredible, incredible story. And now he's in a leadership position. He's also been a drone operator, a drone maintenance guy. Yeah, now he's a, he teaches people how to operate drones, an exceptional character. So we look forward to more updates from him. But it's glad to, glad to hear that he's actually translating his knowledge and his almost decade-long military experience to actually lead the Russian armies and lead, not, not just Russian armies, but beginning at a squad level, actually learning military leadership from a very practical perspective. And, and perhaps he'll be a lot safer as well, you know, actually planning things from the background. This may be one of the positive things we've been hearing this week that he's been moved to that sort of position but yes the persecution horrendous right and this takes place literally less than a day after the airing of the putin interview in the uh ukrainian oblast of chernovitskaya so in the chernovitskaya oblast the russian orthodox church a ukrainian you know under the ukrainian autonomy of metropolitan and completely canonical is seized by a raid uh two of Epiphany is actually false priests actually attended the raid naturally. You always need your uh, false clerics, these false priests of Baal to be present at, at a certain bloodletting. And there was certainly blood spill as Orthodox parishioners attempted to get into their church, which they've helped build, which they helped donate icons to, which they helped furnish, things like that. These these local parishes do not belong to these criminals and Antifa and who, I don't know, these weird Banderite neo-Nazi liberal toxic elements who essentially took this church by power, stood outside of it with massive uh, blue and yellow Ukrainian flags. Like that flag itself is almost like a sign of outright Satanism at this point. Like that's why notice the only time I even use that emoji on Twitter or anywhere else is like in a sign of disgust. I would not, that flag is associated with persecution on Christianity. It's not a flag of a nation or a people. It's a flag of a demonic activity in our physical realm. That's what that blue and yellow flag is. And naturally, you know, Probably really bad things happened in that church. Possibly, you know, there's these criminals stomping around. The anti-mince was most likely taken by these false priests because that's what they do. They When they raid a church, they take the anti-mince cloth because, and then they either tear it up because it has the signature of, say, Patriarch Alexei II or the signature of uh, Patriarch Kirill. They maybe take the holy relics out of the anti-mince or maybe they even use the anti-mince because, like pagan scholars, they believe it has... Well, it does actually have the blessing of the Holy Spirit, but they, they treat it as this like 
sacred object as this object which has magical power and so only on this object can we conduct a liturgy but the fact is if you're not a member of the church you can't conduct a liturgy even if you use sacred vessels and objects which have liturgical value inside the church outside of outside of it right so they're treating it just as Tsar Belshazzar did in the old testament when he took the vessels and he wanted to drink from them from the old Jerusalem temple in Babylon it's just this is like really biblical type stuff you know people like Alex Jones like to make these analogies but this is yeah what's happening in the world today is very very biblical it's very very dark and i find it fascinating reporting on it because frankly i couldn't have imagined things like this taking place a decade ago so the persecution surely continues and what the patriarch of our esteemed city of istanbul former constantinople the second rome is doing again would turn a lot of saints in their graves because especially a lot of the great saints who actually ruled over that city as patriarchs in the past promoting schism at a time when the russian church is literally at its weakest in terms of it's being torn apart again just like it was in 1917 1918 when the uh, patriarchs of constantinople not just meletheus metexakis but his successors as well gregory the seventh and other patriarchs of constantinople supported the living church supported literal bolshevik talmudic bolsheviks in the early soviet union against patriarch tikon and the other saints during the persecution the same thing Patriarch Bartholomew is doing now supporting Zelensky and supporting these weird Baltic LGBTQ type NATO regimes, right? And turning, tearing apart the church on the fringes in places where Russian forces cannot intervene, cannot save Orthodox Christians from harassment, from persecution. This is like a very dark page in the history of the ecumenical patriarchate. And I'm just hoping like to turn it over very soon. And you know i'm not sure what needs to take place for that for that to occur maybe maybe a, a, a synod needs to come together perhaps other patriarchs need to call out in judgment in condemnation of patriarch bartholomew's actions but what's what's taking place in the baltic states in latvia lithuania and estonia uh, as well as finland to some extent is uh quite negative and yeah it'll have disastrous results i think in the short and long term yeah we're seeing the macedonian orthodox church their autocephaly is not being recognized by the ecumenical patriarchate, which it's very confusing because it seems that the Macedonians are willing to accept a second tomos of autocephaly from the EP, despite the fact that they're recognized as autocephalous by the majority of the Orthodox world by their tomos they got from the Serbians, which who's, that's who they're supposed to receive autocephaly from. That's canonically how it's supposed to work. But the EP doesn't want to admit that because that would undermine their tomos of autocephaly they gave to Ukraine because we know that only Russia and the Russian Synod could give full autocephaly to Ukraine. It couldn't just be unilaterally given by Constantinople. Be sure to read Metropolitan Nikiforos's book if you want to understand the ecclesiology behind all of that. But yeah, the Macedonian Orthodox Church, they are refusing to accept even that second tomos because that tomos comes with the condition that they need to celebrate and recognize the schismatic OCU. And the head of the Macedonian Orthodox Church, Metropolitan Timotej, which I guess is the Macedonian Timothy, he says that, no, the OCU are unordained schismatic laymen that have no place in the Orthodox world. So he's standing strong on that. So thank you, Macedon bros. You know, we, you know, again, I, I don't know my exact position on the name question, but the Greeks, they're not doing themselves any favors. So, you know, maybe Alexander the Great was Macedon, was Northern Macedonian. Just <laughs> that that'll get me some hate. I'm like, sorry, sorry, Greek bros. I'm just we're just we're just messing around here. Just stop. Just you know, just get your people in line a little bit. But 
in the midst of all of this, you know, perhaps God is sending a message, and this is a bit less fortunate, but it ties directly in with the OCU persecutions of as they, you know, exercise demonic power over the canonical worshipers of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. The Turkish government is moving in on more monasteries. This had been a story for the past few years. They had talked about doing this. Of course, they made Hagia Sophia a mosque, and it now smells terrible, and it's apparently about to collapse, which is a tragedy, but that's what happens. You know, buildings, you know, without the Holy Spirit, it's, it is just a building. And we're seeing the same thing happen now with the historic Chora Monastery, which apparently is about to, it's in Istanbul, of course, apparently it's about to open as a mosque later this month. And it was, this is a 6th century monastery that was originally converted into a mosque after the, after the Ottoman conquests in the 16th century. But beginning in 1945, it operated as a museum until the decision of the Turkish Supreme Court in 2019 and Erdogan's decree in August 2020 that ordered it to be turned back into a mosque. Since then, the church has been undergoing restoration work in preparation for its reopening as a mosque, which the state has announced will happen on February 23rd. So, yeah, you've probably seen pictures of some of the most famous frescoes of the resurrection of Christ. I mean, literally the famous icon of the harrowing of Hades, you know, of Christ pulling Adam and Eve up out of hell, that's at this monastery. But I don't know, I guess they're going to cover that up because that's a heretical image in the wisdom of Islam, of course. They're going to cover up some of the most beautiful transcendental sacred imagery because of their pedophile religion. But the Turkish government seems to be seems to be moving forward with their neo-Ottoman restoration. And I think it's good to draw the conclusions, the, draw the similarities here with Ukraine, because again, on this show, while again, it seems like it's going to get there in a very backward sort of way, just as St. Paisio said, that Russia will move on Turkey, not because of love for Greece, but because of their own interests. But this highlights that, yes, Russia, while it is ultimately for geopolitics that forced them into Ukraine, because if they really cared about the Orthodox worshippers there, first and foremost, they would have moved in in 2014. You know, Strelkov has talked about this. But same thing in Turkey. While they may have real geopolitical reasons that force them, I'd be surprised if they didn't at least cite, you know, the historic persecution of Christianity by the Turks as a reason if they do end up going to war with the Turks the next 10 years or so. And this monastery being turned into this mosque is is a perfect example of something that would obviously be reversed if something like that were to happen. And sure, it's not happening as violently because, of course, the Patriarch of Constantinople does not have a huge Orthodox flock in all of these regions, which is why, in many ways, while this is old and it's a tragedy, it's not as tragic as what's happening in Ukraine as real active Orthodox communities are being disrupted and people are killed and whatnot. It's it's horrible. But this, you know, this shows you what can happen if your civilization begins to retreat from orthodoxy and whatnot. And we have to we have to pray that Turkey can return to orthodoxy and that Turkish people can even convert to orthodoxy. Of course, Metropolitan Neophytos talks all about this. But uh Dmitri, unless you have anything you want to say about perhaps Metropolitan Longin and any updates on him, I know there inve- there's investigations on, you know, what is happening to him. And of course, you mentioned the Lithuanians and the Estonians as the EP continues to, you know, breach all sorts of canonical jurisdictional canons and whatnot. And it, in its work, it's a real, it's a real mess. Yes, essentially the Lithuanian now officially legally registers a Constantinople ecumenical exarchate on its soil. So this is 
again, really concerning because, again, it's spreading these these tentacles of schism in in a land which is NATO occupied. It has NATO control. There's no. There's not going to be any deterrence for any of these potential clergymen from you know, canonical jurisdictions of the Russian Orthodox Church into going into, say, this exarchate because maybe NATO and Greek and and the Greek exarchate actually pays more, right? So it could be like the Moldovan Romanian scenario where Romanian church actually pays pays more money to its clergyman than Moldo than the Moldovan church does. And so well the clergymen simply move jurisdictions because they, they receive more funds and understandably so in the Rus in the Orthodox Church clergymen have families, they have, you know, you do see reasons why they need to upkeep those families and payment goes a long way in this regard. But this is one of these uh, pretexts like what is more important, canonical uh, ecclesiology Orthodox tradition or money and well-being in this earthly life, right? So it's just one of these tests, and this will be the test that Lithuania will be facing now that the EP has certainly moved in. It's a test that Estonia has been facing, you know, for the last 100 years, being pulled between uh, these two ecumen this ecumenical patriarchate front, which uh, continued to re-emerge on this land, uh, except for during the so-called Soviet occupation, more like Soviet reintegration of Estonia. Estonia naturally is. I would say one of the lands which could be historically classified as Russian as well. So I don't think we'll get into it on this show, but definitely after Belarus, Ukraine, Ukraine and Kazakhstan, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania could be considered Russian, especially Lithuania, which used to be the land of the Russians and the Lithuanian people, literally a joint state, the majority of which or at least 50, over 50% 50 were at least Russian people back in the medieval times. But this is again, this is a bit Putinist, a bit, uh, a bit historical and we do reference these sort of things on occasion. Metropolitan Longin faced, we mentioned his beating last week very briefly because the news has just come out and it's just been confirmed. There are you know, horrendous photographs. His face is swollen, bruised. He was beaten outside of his house by, there was a knock on the door. Uh, he was let in. This is the official story on the night of January the 22nd. So this happened a little while ago, actually. But the fact is the pious and humble Metropolitan simply didn't announce didn't announce it. And so he has been undergoing treatment and getting taken care of for a few weeks now. But yeah, he's uh, returned back to serving at the liturgy and he's finally announced that at a, during a, a sort of once everyone is kissed across, he's wearing sunnies, sunglasses, right, at the liturgy, uh, which is, it's pretty cool looking, but that's because his eyes were bruised, his face is so swollen that he's just trying to hide any sort of, um, you know, just trying to hide the marks and scars on his uh, on his unfortunate face maybe his eyesight is damaged but it shows that in the ukrainian regime they're not afraid to beat bishops they're not afraid to beat clergymen the most respected ones i mean people metropolitan longan is a living saint essentially the, the way he caters to his adopted children things like that it's just amazing his life is his life is an example of a hierarchy you know we mentioned him in our favorite hierarchs uh, episode but he, he needs to be studied this is an exceptional man uh, reminiscent of somebody like St. John of Shanghai in San Francisco, just enormous kindness. And the fact that he's the one being abused shows that the Ukrainian regime is actually not of God, and it's an evil permitted by God. And these these people are not God's chosen elect, or even, you know, not, not even democratically elected, but not even elected by God to rule over Ukraine. It's, it's a, a demonic influence, a demonic position, which God permitted by the sins of the Ukrainian population to rule in that land. And this is like the clear example of that because none of this is godly. This this is direct persecution going back to the early centuries when Jews and pagan Romans used to beat up Christians and persecute them openly. And you know, Zelensky is one of those type of people. So, of course, he would you know, orchestrate these sort of events. 
horrendous outcomes come out of horrendous political decisions, as we've seen on the show uh, over time and time again. Uh, we hope that it actually comes to light that he's okay and he's restored to good health, especially considering the fact that Metropolitan Longin unfortunately has suffered hard complications as well. So we wish him good health, especially we wish him to stay around, right? Stay. Hopefully he, he actually sees the light to the time when Ukraine is freed from this demonic regime and when the Russian Orthodox Church yeah, can return. But one thing I want to mention, just the fact that we, since we're talking about returning and this church in Chora, Kora, that's you know, being made into a mosque, this is the direct outcome of what you do. Like the, the Lord, remember Constantinople had many, many monasteries, cathedrals, churches, and they were destroyed because the people of Constantinople fell into fell into sin. They fell into the union with the Roman Catholics. And yeah, I know Catholic listeners might be confused, but in the Orthodox Church, yes, when, when people succumb to heresy and schism, the Lord punishes people to, in order to educate them. And so the people of Constantinople were surely dealt this really a harsh lesson. And the fact that their churches and cathedrals were destroyed by, by the Ottomans, by the Islamists, that was permitted back in there back then. It's it's being permitted today, unfortunately. And there's no there's no rational awakening, is there? The ecumenical patriarchate isn't going to uh, repent. Uh, you know, its bishops aren't going to say, well, what's the, our, one of our most beautiful churches in Anatolia, in ancient Turkey, is being converted to a mosque. How are we going to react? Is there, what can we do? And though, the, the only action they can take is cause more schism in the in the Baltic states. Like this is this is wild. This is crazy. But for Russians, well, Russians cannot save this church in Kora. Cannot save the monastery. Cannot turn Hagia Sophia into a cathedral. Why? Because it's simply not yet on the priority list. You know, we we understand history. Kiev to Russians today is one million percent more important than Constantinople. Like. Kiev has more relics of saints, has more cathedrals, more churches, more pious Orthodox Christians living in it than Istanbul does. So all these talks about retaking Istanbul, Istanbul, Constantinople, and or even the church in Kora saving it, these things are all secondary, third and fourth and fifth, and all the way down to tenth after retaking all these Orthodox Christian cities and monasteries within Ukraine, which experience persecution and whose bishops are being beaten, placed into prisons and abused. And the Orthodox laity, I mean, probably not even documented what's happening to the laity in these places. So this needs to be taken into consideration for any folks who say that you know, we're some supporting the Turkish, uh, Turkish desecration or we're saying Russia shouldn't be involved. It's like Russia will be involved after it deals with its own issues, literally right next to it, where a lot more of its flock are actually engaged. Because what matters most is the Orthodox Christian people, right? And their souls, not necessarily the actual physical cathedrals and objects, because the, you know, mm -hmm. the church is the people and the population. I totally agree. And speaking of terrible political decisions that have spiritual consequences, the Greek government, you know, they continue to slowly but surely move forward with their homosexual marriage plans. And of course, we did see the EP disavow it, but I wish the people of Greece and these government officials would, would look at these things happening, like the Kora Monastery, and then, you know, act accordingly in their civil duties. But Mount Athos, of course, came out with a joint statement from the abbots of all 20 monaster monasteries. It says, the Athenite abbots and sacred communities say, gay marriage bill threatens all of mankind and creation. So... I, I very much agree there. So they're they're making sure that they understand this is a this is a cosmic battle, not just not just a silly discussion about legal marriage documents. This is you know this is important stuff, and the Athenites know that the the physical political consequences will be dire. You know if Greece really goes forward with this, and 
also i mean we saw gay people like poop and like vandalize and spray paint all over this cathedral because the church had come out so strongly against gay marriage so you know the church in the orthodox world has been very much under attack whether it's by political politically motivated schismatics you know muslims and now homosexuals it seems that all the forces of evil around the world are uniting against holy orthodoxy which you know that shows you that we're on the right side of things but Moving on from the church stuff, we got to wrap up a few smaller political items. Of course, the election in Pakistan is going full United States 2020. Imran Khan's party, the PTI, won in a massive landslide. And after it was shown that they had won like 150 seats, the last 40 seats, they just stopped counting and are now mass ballot stuffing in all these small towns. People are finding ballots apparently filled out by people like Cristiano Ronaldo and Bape, Messi. They're just, they're just stuffing random ballots for the opposition, the current governing party, which is extremely unpopular. Imran Khan is this hyper-popular Trumpist figure who, again, regarding the international relations stuff, Pakistan already is against Israel among, amongst everything they do, and Imran Khan was even more staunchly against Israel. Some say that if he was in power, he would have allowed all of these Pakistani militias and stuff to just march march westwards towards towards the Mediterranean Sea, much like the Houthis have said they want to do. So. You know, there's all sorts of angles here, but it seems that the mandate is there and that the stealing is just trying to keep the PTI from getting a massive two-thirds plus majority and basically be able to govern with impunity. And of course, Imran Khan, despite being sentenced to 10 years in prison, it appears he may be out again soon now that his party is retaking power. So we're going to be watching Pakistan, of course, and in the midst of all of this, China is sending some of the highest amounts of balloons and and observation drones and other things towards Taiwan that we've ever seen. So as well as conducting Navy exercises with Russia in the Taiwan Straits. So it seems that Russia and Chinese, you know, Tucker asked about China and whatnot and Russia. I mean, and Putin very much, you know, kind of shot down any ideas about Chinese, you know, the danger of China and anything like that. It seems the Russian-Chinese alliance is stronger than ever. But at the same time, in the midst of the, just to cover all of the multipolar fronts, the Essequibo conflict, which we said had been dying down, is back in the spotlight. It seems that satellite images are showing that Venezuela is moving military hardware to the Guyana border. That's from the Wall Street Journal. And that shows tanks and armored carriers positioned on all sorts of islands, I mean, in the rivers and whatnot near Guyana. And the threats have, have also increased in that regard. So we're watching all of that. It appears that you know, when it came to Putin's willingness to, we talked about him meeting with Beryl Lazar and what he's doing and all these announcements about the hostages and, you know, Putin potentially making a move in Ukraine or not. It seems that some of, we talked about this kind of right-wing specter around the world of these ultra-Zionists that have been installed in certain countries from Latin America to Europe to elsewhere. And it seems that these people are pushing for a a scale down in Ukraine, you know, negotiations there so that we can fully refocus on Israel and helping Israel. And if Putin, you know, I hoped that I hope that he does this, that instead of doing that, that Putin recognizes everybody scaling up in Israel and uses that as an opportunity to push forward in Ukraine, you know, play them against each other as opposed to playing along and, you know, trying to shut things down and come to the negotiating table. Obviously, Biden has rejected... Nego is this, again, is based Brandon what we're seeing here? You know, Brandon rejecting negotiations. We're not shutting down Ukraine to go to is to go fight for Israel. And now the media is all turning on Biden. Again, you know, if that's the case, you know, thanks, Uncle Joe, but it looks like you're, you're on the way out soon. So all of this stuff comes together, of course. And with the Guyana Essequibo stuff, 
Maduro, of course, is a key ally of China and Russia more so than others as one of the most sanctioned countries in the Western Hemisphere. So he is watching all of this, possibly thinking that if that all, all of those things start happening at once, of course, he could make his move. And that would help boost him in the political polls, obviously, because it's a generally held position that the Essequibo region is Venezuela among the Venezuelan population. But yeah, the the dying down in Ukraine with the focus on Israel, obviously, it seems that the Israelis and the Zionists are going to move forward regardless with their multi-front war. But I'm hoping that Putin will use that opportunity to keep pushing in Ukraine while the powers that be are distracted. But meeting with Beryl Lazar, that doesn't make that super hopeful, but, you know, we'll see how it goes. But we're getting pretty close on time here, Dimitri. Do you have any final words on the Third World War right now? I I think this Tucker-Putin interview may have been the last civil discussion. If the Third World War escalates, well, which it is, with each week and almost every month we see new developments which naturally kind of push it over a certain brink. And everybody's talking about the Third World War in the last year and a half. It's been the most spoken about subject in the media besides, you know, even more, more so than COVID, which has kind of, uh, kind of left the discourse at the moment. But uh, yes, it's getting really hot. A lot of a lot of cogs are moving. You know, the Hasidic rabbis are traveling. Lots of meetings are being are taking place. There's a lot of diplomacy taking place behind the scenes. You know, the events. Unfortunately, Putin did not hand Tucker Carlson the actual draft in the meet in meeting minutes, which you know the conference between the Russian side and the Ukrainian side, which took place in Turkey. Can you imagine if those 2002 peace conference documents were published by the Russian side? That would have been amazing. That would have been an amazing input by Putin to actually exposing the corrupt Zelensky regime. Uh, but unfortunately, those diplomatic documents were probably maybe a bit too private that were discussed in Turkey in 2022. A missed opportunity, perhaps. Other missed opportunities could include you know, exposing maybe through Russian spy systems, the Epstein Island case, May events such as 9-11 of the dancing Israelis and yeah, Mossad's involvement, which Russia I'm sure had some awareness of back in the day, even 2001, or perhaps even the Nord Stream pipeline explosion. Probably if a brief could have been put together, given to Tucker and have him publish it. I mean, these are all these opportunities, unfortunately, were missed. Just as, uh, you know, as we watch world news like throughout the last few years, whenever some big figure is exposed, there never seems to be a dead man switch. You know, we keep talking about it and possibly with Netanyahu as well. Whenever big People are taken out, like Prigozhin, Jeffrey Epstein, people who are tied to power, tied sometimes to very deep roots. They always have these like weird uh, connections to these clans behind the scenes, these, the tribe, the tribes in plural form. There never seems to be repercussions after their sudden demises, right? It's always, almost as if things are going according to plan, but whose plan? Uh, I guess we'll find out. So stay tuned, guys. Uh, lots of crazy developments. And we, we do recommend, me and Conrad do recommend, you watch the Putin-Tucker interview just to kind of, if you haven't watched it yet and you've watched this episode first, we do recommend you watch that two-hour interview only because just to have some context as to what's taking place in the world. It's one of the probably most important interviews, even though for an avid you know listener of World War Now, the information may not be new. I think you'll find the historical elements of it at least somewhat refreshing because all the historical facts given by Putin were actually all correct zero lies at all like completely zero and all the references to bolshevism contributing to the construction of ukraine specifically lenin himself who you know we published on our telegram channel some really explicit quotes by lenin where he's literally saying that ukraine should be a separate state and should have the right to separate from russia i mean this is just like satanic separatism at this point because again it involves necessarily promoting schism in the church as well and leads to all these other 
self-destructive things we spoke about in the episode. But yeah, Putin kind of comes out and exposes it, speaks about his kind of disassociates himself from this Bolshevik communist heritage, which mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people have been tying him to. So that's the other positive thing. But definitely go watch it. Have your own conclusions from it. I mean, it took place regardless of uh, what people's views are. I think the outcomes will naturally trickle down from it. But uh, there are big things taking place and all eyes on the Middle East, all eyes on Rafa, and all eyes on the opportunity that Russia has moving into spring and summer when the snow will melt and the land will be clear for armor and tanks to be moved in yeah, in full force. Just as we saw, we are reaching that two-year anniversary of the SMO beginning in late February when the Russian tanks, you know, the snow began to melt and the Russian tanks started driving. They started driving into Chernigovskaya Oblast, they started driving into Sumskaya Oblast, Kievskaya, Gastomel. May it happen again. We're watching for that very closely, of course. And with all of that, thank you so much for listening, everybody. Be sure to click the link in the description down below to participate in our upcoming Q&A. The next episode of Ether Hour, of course, will be a Q&A from Dimitri and I. We've already got some amazing questions in the Q&A thread. So get behind the paywall, sign up for the free trial, whichever one you want. It supports the show either way. Of course, if you stay behind the paywall, it really helps us out, helps us keep these weekly episodes free. You can do all of that at worldwarnow.co. That'll all be linked down below as well so worldwarnow.co worldwarnow.substack.com subscribe to us there get every episode in your email inbox and if you get behind the paywall again you'd be supporting us you get access to 30 plus episodes of ether hour all sorts of articles and again the q a's so don't miss out on that i think it's a really good deal really great value but follow us elsewhere as well world war now underscore you can hear my reaction to the putin tucker interview right as it was released be sure to follow us on Telegram, World War Now Telly. We've really been growing there. We've really been getting shared by some big pages, so the Telegram is always one of the first places to hear breaking news, so be sure to check that out. Follow us here on YouTube, World War Now, whether you're listening on Substack or not, subscribe to that channel. We do stuff there. My live stream of the Tucker thing got shut down, but we're still up there. I think we're still monetized as far as I'm aware. I'm not sure, but subscribe there. Subscribe on Rumble, World War Now. Follow me on Twitter at slash X at GnomeRad. Follow Dimitri at OCanonist. And yeah, worldwarnow.co, again, that's our home base. And with all of that being said, thank you so much for listening, and God bless. <laughs>